With your host, Ed Bondarenka. Our goal is to provide a platform for a discussion of pro life, pro Christian, and pro American constitutional principles in the light of current and historical events. America, bless God. Hi, folks. Welcome to a special day after Christmas, Christmas edition of Your American Heritage. Today, I wanted to have Bill Federer noted author, historian, and friend of the show, come on and tell us a heartwarming story from the American Revolution concerning Christmas Day, how a group of Americans led by George Washington crossed a frozen river in the dead of night on Christmas Day to protect our liberties and take the battle to the enemy. So without further ado, Bill, welcome to the show. Right, well, um, the battle that you're referring to um, the Battle of Trenton. It's December 25th, 1776. Um, a little background. Uh, Britain w was the most powerful empire in world history up to that point. The sun never set on the British Empire. They had um, India and Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, and the American colonies. The sun never set on the British Empire. So the King of England was like a globalist. He was like a one-world government guy. And America's founders decided they didn't like that. And so they flipped it and made the people the king, right? The word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. So we're citizens of America. You're a co-king of America. Anyway, the process of it was pretty difficult. It was an eight-year revolutionary war. Uh, the uh, first uh, engagement is Boston. And so the uh, British uh, win the Battle of Bunker Hill, Breeds Hill, and then they occupy Boston. And George Washington has 25-year-old Henry Knox go up to Fort Ticonderoga, and he spends three months dragging 59 cannons down. Uh, they, you know, some of them fall through the the, the ice when they're crossing uh, a lake or a river, and they have to fish it out. And uh, the local pastors help get the people together to fish out the cannons. And well, they get it there to Boston in early March of 1776, and they put straw around the wagon wheels and uh, pull them up to the top of Dorchester Heights, which was the highest hill in the Boston Harbor with nothing on it. And the British had not thought to secure it. And now if you put a cannon on top of Dorchester Heights, when it shoots, the trajectory means the cannonball can hit the British ships. And so uh, they had a, a day of fasting and prayer, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, and it just happened to be that day, and the British were going to attack, but a storm comes out of nowhere, and it's so tempestuous that they have to call off the attack. The British tell Washington, if you don't shoot at us while we're evacuating and sailing out, we won't torch the city on our way out. <laughs> so uh, they leave, and there's enthusiasm that sweeps the colonies, like this is going to be a real easy revolution. Well, the British... Uh, Nobody knows where they're going to go next. Then Washington finds out they're planning on going to New York, which was well, one of the biggest cities in America at the time, if not the biggest. And uh, the Americans dig in at, in Brooklyn Heights, and they're facing the water. 
And the British fill up the harbor with 400 ships, 32,000 British troops. It's the largest uh, firepower of ships assembled in world history with all the cannons. And it gets real serious. The Continental Congress has a, a day of fasting and prayer. And um, the uh, battle, uh, there was a British loyalist that showed the British were to land far away from the American position and march all night long through Jamaica Pass and attack Washington from behind on August 27th of 1776. 3,000 Americans die, only 300 British. It's the, it's the entire American army. If we lose here, it's over. And it's the largest battle of the revolution. Well, uh, the sun goes down. Washington lost all those men. And he's pinned up against the water and looks like the revolution will be over before it starts. And America will be another British colony like Kenya or India or whatever. And, um, but Washington gets every boat he can find and he begins to ferry the troops across the East River to Manhattan Island. It's uh, the glass, the, the lake, the East River is smooth as, as glass, but out where the British ships are, it's a tempestuous nor'easter wind. And uh, he gets about half his army across and the sun starts to come up. Now he's really a sitting duck. His chief of intelligence, Major Ben Talmadge, writes, as the dawn of the next day approached, those of us who remained in the trenches became very anxious for our own safety. And when the dawn appeared, there were several regiments still on duty. At this time, a very dense fog began to rise off the river and seemed to settle in a peculiar manner over both encampments. I recollect this peculiar providential occurrence perfectly well. And so very dense was the atmosphere that I could scarcely discern a man at six yards distance. We tarried until the sun had risen but the fog remained as dense as ever. Well, they, Washington continues to move the army and he's on the last boat that leaves. The fog lifts, the British charge, no one's there. It's, it's the last chance the British had to capture the entire American army all at once. So Washington is now on Manhattan Island and uh, he is uh, waiting for the British, the British land, and they're gonna cut the island in half with Washington pinned on the wrong side. And so, uh, the, as they're crossing and pinning, uh, there's like one farm left. And the British commander stops at uh, a, a house and, and orders them to cook him dinner. And, and uh, the lady's all upset. But then they get word to her that she's the last farm before the water. And um, the American troops are down by the water's edge, evacuating from the wrong end of Manhattan Island. And can, they can she delay him as long as possible? And so her attitude changes uh, and she's like, oh, stay and have some dessert. And she like, you know, uh, drags <laughs> it on for another hour or two and all the Americans get across. Well, uh, the British chase the Americans and the Americans lose Fort Washington. They lose this battle. They lose all of New Jersey. In six months, Washington's troops dwindle from 20,000 down to 2,000. And the soldiers had only committed to um, a six month period. And so uh, now so they're... if I might, part of that then is is not so much that they didn't die. It's just attrition. They're fading away in the face of the, the hardships they're facing. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't die. They, you know, some of them obviously did. Mm -hmm. uh, the British were cruel. I mean, they were rape and pillage, all those New Jersey farms. And, um, and so um, Washington Cross, now he's on the Pennsylvania side. And uh, the British hire German Hessian troops. They're mercenaries. They're paid killers. And they're the toughest troops in Europe. And they're at Trenton. And uh, Washington uh, has the Thomas Paine's American Crises uh, read to the troops. 
Uh, treason like hell is not easily conquered. The sunshine soldier, you know, will, will faint in the day of adversity. And um, heaven knows how to place a price on its goods. Goods, And it would be strange if so celestial an item as freedom would not be highly rated. And anyway, it stirs the troops up. Washington talks them into not uh, going back to their farm after six months. And uh, they recross the, uh, the Delaware River into uh, New Jersey. And uh, he had his troops broken into three groups. Two groups didn't make it across because of the ice in the river. The one group made it across. Now, this is Christmas Eve, right, at this Christmas, point? Christmas Day evening. Okay. All righty. And so now, uh, whereas uh, the Americans, they weren't celebrating Christmas that much, but the Germans did. The Germans really liked the Christmas traditions. Um, and uh, so the one story is that the Germans may not have been on their peak alertness because of it being the Christmas holiday, but um, they were drunk. Uh, there's a debate both ways, and okay. so you know. But what the, the scenario was? It's freezing cold. There's a blizzard that night, and uh, someone snitches and tells the the German Hessians that the Americans are planning an attack. Well, unbeknownst to Washington, uh, one of the groups of his men. Uh, attacks the uh the german position in the middle in the middle of a blizzard uh the germans fire a couple of shots and this group retreats and so the german says well that was it that wasn't very big of attack and and so now the german commander's sitting at dinner and someone walks in and gives him a note and the note says the americans are planning on attacking tonight and he says yeah i already know about that and he stuffs the note in his pocket well, Washington is furious that that one, you know, uh, group had attacked. And he thought, oh, man, you blew our surprise. And uh, but it turned out providential. And so Washington's men are in uh, quiet. They're, they're doing it in the dark. Uh, they're marching. It's about 15 miles. Uh, one, one freezes to death on the march. And, uh, and so through the blizzard. And then it's the, the dawning of the 26th and they charge into town and they do catch the Germans totally off guard and they're firing from behind fences, behind rocks and trees. And when you understand the European warfare, it was you line up in a field and your side and their side and you uh, load, aim, fire, load, aim, fire. And it's uh, a disciplined, uh, courageous, uh, fight at very close ranges and people are falling dead on either side and they just keep shooting and, and until one surrenders. Well, when the Americans are start shooting from everywhere, uh, it catches them off guard. Um, they, they try to line up at the middle, you know, at the top of the street and Alexander Hamilton gets a, a cannon in place just in time, fires down the street and blows away a bunch of them and and so finally outside of town, the, the German Hessians are finally getting on their horses and they're all getting in position and everything. And someone shoots the German commander and he's wounded and he falls from his horse. And now the rest of the Germans don't really know what to do. Uh, back then, it was sort of a, a gentleman's rule of warfare that no no one shoots the officer on horseback. Oh. Uh, and and it was sort of the, the you know, the... the the European rules of engagement, and it was, you know. Did, 
Now, were rifles involved at this point? I'm given to understand that there were a lot of sharpshooter American soldiers. Now, I don't know if they were this early in the war, but that they could actually pick off. They actually made it a point of picking off these officers at a distance and that there was some story of some British officer who was standing up and he says, oh, no, they can never hit me from, and I think that was his last words. Or <laughs> <laughs> Right, uh, the Pennsylvania Long Rifles. Um, and now, for those not familiar, you take a, a metal barrel and you make a, a car- spiral carving in it. And so when the, uh, back then, they were just round balls, but um, as it would go through the barrel, it would grab a hold of that groove and it would spin it. Best way to explain it is a football. Right. Mm-hmm. So imagine the football has a spin on it and that keeps it accurate. Uh, so these Pennsylvania long rifles, they um, they took a full two minutes to reload. And so uh, they were accurate, but they were not that uh, useful at close ranges. The, the most common uh, you know, weapon was the old Betsy. It was a musket. It just shot a ball. There wasn't any rifling or spinning to the ball. And it was sort of like if anyone's ever played paintball, uh, where mm-hmm. at, at close ranges it's, it's straight, but then after that it'll veer off to the right or left, or it's, it's unpredictable. And so that's why they would fight these battles at relatively close ranges. The, uh, the German commanders wounded, the rest of the Germans surrender. And the, uh, so the German commander, I think his name was Raoul, uh, he's dying and he's in a room in some house and... Um, he tells Washington to come up so that he can surrender to him. Sort of the gentleman's warfare thing where one officer surrenders to another. Washington doesn't respect these gentlemen rules of warfare. He goes, you're hired killers. You've come over here to kill us. So Washington refused to go up, sent up some, you know, lower officer to receive the surrender. and The guy dies. Um, so the, the Americans have uh, several a uh, hundred of these um, German Hessians, and they go back over the Pennsylvania, uh, uh, the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. They, um, on their promise not to raise arms against America again, they let them go because we don't have a big enough army to guard hundreds of soldiers and feed them and all the other kind of stuff. And uh, evidently, uh, back then, if you gave your word, uh, you you were expected to keep it. And so then Washington recrosses the Delaware. And by this time, the British got news and they sent Cornwallis's army uh, from, uh, you know, New York to come on down. And they're upset and they're serious. Most of the warfare takes place, you know, spring and summer, fall, but not in the wintertime. And so this was a great breach from protocol for wars. Mm -hmm. And um, so they got to Princeton and uh, for those uh, remembering the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, when the British attacked Washington from behind, this time, Battle of Princeton, the Americans are on one side of a creek, the British on the other, it's evening, and the battle will commence the next day. While Washington leaves his campfires burning, uh, a couple guys in camp to cling the pots and pans, and in silence, he marches his troops out of the back of camp and then in a big circle to come around the other side and uh, attack the British from behind. And there's all kinds of providential instances where the, the one you know British 
group of soldiers that was there to guard one of the roads. Um, somebody at the last minute, you know, told them to go to another place. Um, well, that left that road uh, unmanned. And so Washington was able to march down it without being noticed. And uh, long and short, the next morning, the uh, Americans attack the British from behind. And we catch them from behind, but then the British quickly rally and, and they're fighting back and they're uh, bayoneting back. And so the Americans start to uh, retreat and start to run away. Washington rides up to the front of the battle lines. He goes in between the British soldiers and the American soldiers. He turns and faces the American soldiers. He says, uh, aim, <laughs> fire. And so the Americans fire across the field with George Washington in the middle of it. And then the British return the fire and the smoke from their muskets fills the air. One of the American soldiers said he pulled his hat down over his eyes because he did not want to see General Washington shot dead. The smoke clears. Washington is on his horse, waving his hat, saying, charge. Wow. <laughs> and the Americans charge and capture about 800 more of the British. And so this 10-day this period uh, basically had enthusiasm sweep the colonies and buoyed up the whole revolutionary cause. Now, it continued on for another seven years, but this was a critical moment when it could have gone the wrong way. The American troops could have given up and gone back to their farms and Washington would have been hung. We would have been another British colony. So, uh, so whenever there's a king, it's a form of government where if you're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead. Uh, <laughs> our founders flipped it and made us, the people, the king, and the politicians are our servants. You hire them, you fire them. You vote them in, you vote them out. And so basically our, our founders gave us a present. And that present is you get to be in charge of your life and all of us together get to be in charge of the country. That sounds like a deal. I like that. You know, you had mentioned that uh, uh, Washington appeared rather unscathed. It seems, and you mentioned prayer and fasting, which uh, kind of gives the lie to the founders' intent of separation of church and state. It seems like God has answered those prayers at these battles. And one thing I've been pushing in our current uh, trials concerning the stolen election or the attempted stealing of the election is that we need to turn to prayer. We need, to, we need an appeal to heaven. We need to ask Almighty God to intervene on, on our behalf, that we as American citizens, um, we don't deserve it, but we're asking for it, and we ask Him to protect us. So, you know, I've, I'm amazed that the, 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 the things that I hear, that, you know, like, oh, this happened, that, how lucky was that? That wasn't Washington's only brush with being shot at and living to tell the story. What was that about some Indians that shot at him during the American Indian War, was it? Or the French and Indian War? Right. That was the Battle of Monongahela. when so you had uh, Washington, and he was is assisting the British General Ed, Edward Braddock, who was the commanding officer for the British forces in America, which was the British colonies at the time. And this was, this was, of course, before the Revolutionary War, though. Yeah. Right, yeah. So this is would be... Um, uh, I'd have to check the date, but uh, I'm thinking in the 1750s, mm -hmm. maybe later. But um, they're marching through the woods towards Pittsburgh, and it's a French fort, Fort Duquesne. And 
the French and the Indians ambush the Americans uh, or the British Americans. Yeah. And uh, again, uh, the British commander was trying to get the British soldiers to all line up and begin their their fighting uh, as they would do in a um, uh, a regular battlefield. Little did he realize that in, in trying to get his officers to line up in a square, he's actually making them sitting ducks for the for the French and the Indians. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like, you know, as soon as we can get everybody together, then we'll we'll get our machine going and we'll be firing and we'll just blow them away. But and they could never get them all going. And of course, um, the French and the Indians weren't honoring the uh, the battlefield method of the protocols of war yeah. and so forth. Uh, and so 900 is 1400. British American soldiers, 900 died. And uh, Washington, you know, returns back to Fort Cumberland after the battle. And he says, uh, I've heard since my return to this place, a detailed account of my death and dying speech. He said, I take this uh, to say that I haven't, you know, died and I have not yet composed my dying speech, you know, but by the all powerful dispensations of providence, I've been protected beyond all human expectation for I had four bullets bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me and escaped unhurt. And um, so just, yeah, that was a great one where it was miraculous that Washington was spared. I heard another one was the battle of Brandywine and he and another officer were doing reconnaissance riding through the woods. And um, there was a British sharp shooter named Patrick Ferguson. And he lowered his rifle and he had the bead on George Washington and was about to pull the trigger when George Washington turned his back. And this guy, uh, following um, the rules of chivalry, uh, you don't shoot (laughs) somebody in the back. He hesitates and Washington rides away. And they, you know, later researched it. And sure enough, both Washington and Patrick Ferguson were stationed there in that very area. Uh, and so that was another time when Washington was spared. I understand that, that Washington later met with some of the Indians. One of the Indians just said, I, I don't understand it. We just, we, we shot at you point blank. We didn't miss anybody else, but we missed you. Was that, am I remembering that correctly? Right. So, so that's the French and Indian war. That's the battle of Monongahela. And yes, uh, afterwards, uh, years afterwards, uh, Washington and, uh, uh, Dr. Craik were going through the Western Pennsylvania area riding and they were, um, uh, remembering the battle and, uh, an old Indian uh, was brought and met them. And he said how he had been at the battle and he had, uh, ordered his men to shoot at Washington. And, and he said he had 17 fires at him himself, but could not hit him and said that uh, the great spirit was protecting him and had a, a word of prophecy over him that he would be a great leader and, and so forth. Beautiful. So what book do you tell this story in, or what books would we be able to, to read of yours? Oh, well, thank you, Ed. My, uh, it's called Miracles in American History, 32 Amazing Stories of Answered Prayer. Um, there's the, the, the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, you know, with... The evacuation, there's the Battle of Monongahela, there's the Battle of Calpins, where three mm-hmm. rivers rose in 10 days and stopped the British from uh, coming after the Americans. But then the War, War of 1812 has the Battle of Lake Erie, where 28-year-old Oliver Hazard Perry is fighting the British, Robert Barclay, who fought Napoleon, 
We're and, going to have uh, to have you come back and tell us some more of those stories. Right now, we're going to take a break. And folks, be sure to tune in after the break that we can continue this conversation with, with William Federer, uh, noted raconteur and historian. Come on back. Thank you. Courageous, we were made to lead the way. We could be the generation that finally breaks the chains. We were made to be courageous. We were made to be courageous. We were warriors on the front lines, standing unafraid. Hi, folks, welcome back to the second half of. Your American Heritage, the special day after Christmas edition. So earlier in the show, the first half, we had William J. Federer tell us a story about Christmas Day, 1776, and George Washington and the crossing of the Delaware and how the nation was in dire straits and turned to prayer and fasting to seek God's help and how God miraculously answered those prayers. And Bill's written about it in his, in his book, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, Bill's the author of many books. It being Christmas, I wanted another Christmas story from Bill. And I asked him if he would tell us what he knows about St. Nicholas. We were talking earlier, and um, it's a pretty interesting story. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And Bill tells it in his book. There really is a Santa Claus, the yes. history of St. Nicholas and Christmas holiday traditions. Okay. So tell us this story about Santa Claus. I found it pretty interesting that what you had told me in advance uh, about particularly the reindeer, but please do. Right. So St. Nicholas is the most popular Greek Orthodox saint. He is to the Greek Orthodox what St. Peter is to Roman Catholics what St. Patrick is to Irish. So he's like a founding father of the Greek Orthodox Church. He lived in the third century, still during Roman persecution period of time. A movement sweeps through Christianity called pietism or monasticism that was the world is dirty and sinful. And if you really become a Christian, you should give away all of your worldly possessions and live in a cave as a hermit or, get, or live in a monastery or in Egypt they would were building platforms in the desert, climbing on top and baking in the sun, thinking they were denying their flesh and getting holier. But it was all this, my relationship with God and sort of uh, abandonment from uh, responsibility to the world. And um, anyway. Um, I remember you telling us about that uh, the last time we were talking about socialism in America and uh, that movement, how that came about in America, also early America, and the state just loves it. Oh yeah, you Christians just... Go away, leave us alone, let us run rampant, right? They, they right, just love right. that kind of thinking. But go ahead, I'm sorry, I interrupted. You know, so Nicholas was born around 280 AD. His parents were wealthy. They died when a plague swept through town, leaving him with a lot of money as a young man. 
he became a serious Christian and decided to give it away, but he wanted to give it away anonymously because he didn't want to get the credit for it. He wanted the credit to go to God alone. So he would sneak into town. The town was Patara, Asia Minor, not too far from where Ephesus and all those churches mentioned in the New Testament were. Uh, and he would throw money in the window of poor people. Is that Supposedly, the area we call Turkey today? Asia Minor? Correct. Yes, okay. Turkey yeah. today. All right. Um, and so he would throw money in the window of poor people. And uh, so there was one popular story was a merchant in the town had gone bankrupt and back then the creditors would not only come and take your house and lands they would take your children uh, to sex trafficking a terrible life unfortunately this continues in other countries around the world um, I just read a story of 400 children in Nigeria were kidnapped by Boko Haram and um, and so this idea of stealing children Anyway, so here we are, 3rd century A.D., this merchant has gone bankrupt, and he had three beautiful daughters. He knew if they were taken, it would be a tragic life. So he thought if he could hurry up and marry his daughters off, the creditors couldn't take them. Unfortunately, he did not have money for a dowry, which was needed in that area of the world for a legally recognized wedding. Nicholas hears the problem late one night, throws some money in the window. Supposedly, it lands in a shoe or a stocking that is drying by the fireplace. It provides the dowry for the oldest. She gets married. Big buzz talking to town. Throws it in for the second daughter. When he throws it in for the third, the dad was waiting up, ran outside, and caught him. And, Nick, and Nicholas made the father promise not to tell where the money came from because he wanted the credit to go to God. So that's the origin of the tradition of secret gift giving on the anniversary of Nicholas's death, which was December 6, 383. 343 AD. And um, so it's just a Greek thing until the Muslims invade in the year 1087. And they would destroy churches and libraries and museums and artwork and graves. They do this today. And so the Greeks don't want their founding Greek Orthodox founding father uh, trash. So they move his grave to Italy. And the Pope is Urban II. And he dedicates a cathedral. Uh, called uh, San Nicolo de Bari, St. Nicholas of Bari. Bari was a little town on the uh, eastern coast of Italy. and uh, I've been there. Yeah. Have you? Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. I wish I'd known to look for the place. I may have seen it, but that's interesting. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, and so this same Pope Urban II calls for the First Crusade, right? I mean, here we have these Greeks fleeing, 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 and they have their most popular saint being brought over, the remains. And so uh, Pope Urban II goes to the kings of Europe at the Council of Claremont and begs them to send help to the Greek Christians. And they do. It's called the First Crusade. So the Crusades were a response to the Muslims invading the Christian area. Well, uh, now that St. Nicholas traditions are in Western Europe, they catch on and the gift giving is popular, so much so that in 1223 AD, St. Francis of Assisi, sort of in protest, creates the crash scene, the nativity scene, saying all the gift-giving sign, but we need to get back to the real reason for the season. Jesus was born in a manger, the Son of God. And so uh, the Franciscans, Francis of Assisi, they um, did uh, not own any property. They like rejected materialism, and they wore brown burlap sacks and walk around barefoot and, and would preach the scriptures. And um, anyway, the um, uh, 
next is in 1517, Martin Luther starts the Reformation. And uh, Martin Luther, uh, by this time, there's a saint's day for every day of the year. The cathedrals are filled with saints and relics and statues, and uh, he considered that a distraction. So Martin Luther ends all the saints' days, uh, and said, but all the Germans like the gift-giving part of the St. Nicholas Day. So Martin Luther moves all the gift-giving to December 25th and says all gifts come from the Christ child. And the German pronunciation of Christ child is Chris Kindle, or as we pronounce it today, Chris Kringle. Oh. Right, Chris. Chris means Christ, and Kindle, a kindergarten, kindergarten, mm-hmm. kind means child. So Chris Kindle got pronounced Chris Kringle, which means Christ, you know, Christ child. And um, so then uh, we go to uh, England, and we have um, Henry VIII brings the Reformation around 1534, but not because he had a spiritual experience. He just wanted another wife. And so Henry VIII was, um, he brought back the party time. And so remember that Britain used to be a Roman colony and the Romans had a god of of Saturn and they had a feast called Saturnalia, which was a party time. And um, if you saw the Christmas Carol with Charles Dickens, there's the spirit of Christmas present. And he's a big guy with robes and a wreath in his hair and a goblet of wine. The ho, ho, happy party guy. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, Um, yeah, I know. Yeah. And you look at him asking yourself, who is this guy? He sort of looks like Santa, but he also sort of looks like some Roman god. Well, that was Saturn, but they Christianized him and called him Father Christmas. They couldn't call him St. Nicholas because the saints were outlawed. And um, so during Henry VIII's time, Christmas became sort of a, of a Mardi Gras. I mean, it was drinking, carousing, wassailing, where you take a drink of booze, throw the rest of it on some plant for a nice harvest. And, you know, you'd be. And so the, um, uh, the Puritans is a movement that starts at this time. And the Puritans um, decide that it's too worldly. And they said, can God be honored by mad mirth and hard drinking fit for a, you know, Greek Bacchus or a Mohammedan Ramadan? And certainly the son of God cannot be honored by this, you know, uh, heathens uh, activity. And so the the Puritans outlawed, they, they had a civil war in England in 1640 and they won. And the Puritans outlawed Christmas. The Puritans tore down Shakespeare's Globe Theater. Uh, the Puritans were super strict. And that's the time that the Pilgrims and Puritans came to America. And so the Pilgrims and Puritans did not celebrate Christmas. They actually had a five shilling fine for anybody caught celebrating Christmas. It was not until the Dutch settled New York that the Christmas traditions came to America. Wow. I can understand that sentiment. I remember years ago, uh, I went to a certain church and they were a decent Christian church, but they had this pamphlet, The Secret of Christmas, and they pointed out all the things about not worshiping a tree, the, uh, the, the you know, scriptures that talk about uh, you take a tree out and you, you know, put silver and gold over it, and it sounds like a Christmas tree in the Old Testament, you know, and the, God's saying this is not something you're supposed to do, and of course... All these things, it pretty much sounded like the Puritans. And so that year, uh, we did not have a tree in our house, and we didn't put the lights up. And then my kid, who was like four years old, comes home one day, says, Dad, are we Jehovah Witnesses? At which point, I went and got the tree, the lights, put everything back up again, because, hey, (laughs) you got to make a stand. But this is very fascinating. Yeah, so the tree, um, I... um I'll put it on hold with the uh, Santa traditions uh, getting uh, 
to New York with the Dutch. But um, so the you know how St. Patrick went from Britain to Ireland mm-hmm. and evangelized the Druids. And he used a three-leaf clover to teach the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, the Germans uh, were a tribe, tribes that came in from the Central Asia, and uh, they worshiped Thor. And that's where we get the word Thor's Day or Thursday. And then they worshiped a god named Woden, and that's where we get Woden's Day or Wednesday. And so in 722 AD, there's a, a Saint Boniface, also called Winfred, and he leaves Britain. And he goes through the woods and he gets to this German area at Geismar and he um, gets there just as they're about to sacrifice a human sacrifice to this oak tree that Thor lived in. And St. Boniface takes a big axe and he chops down the oak tree. (laughs) And uh, somebody says, well, stop him. And somebody else said, well, if Thor's really a a god, he can protect his own tree. And then St. Boniface pointed at an evergreen tree and said, let, let this be the tree of the Christ child. See how it points toward heavens. It's evergreen and let it shelter um, like everlasting life. Let it shelter no deeds of blood. Your houses are built full of, of fir or cedar and let it be called the tree of the Christ child. And he used the evergreen tree because it was in the shape of a triangle. And he used that to teach the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Interesting. So, and so the Germans would put it in their houses. Sometimes they'd hang it upside down from the ceiling, you know. Um, but supposedly Martin Luther was coming home one evening uh, and he saw the sky twinkling and he p- brought a tree home, put it up candles in the branches to tell his son, this is like the sky above Bethlehem on the night of Christ's birth. So wow. that's the tree thing. Now, the lights at that time of year, that goes back to the Jewish Hanukkah when the the Maccabees drove the the pagan Syrian army out of Jerusalem and they cleaned out the temple and they lit the the candle, the the menorah, the candelabra, but uh, it only had enough oil for one day, but the oil miraculously lasted eight days. And so they call it the Feast of Dedication. And even Jesus in the book of John was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. And they walking among Solomon's porch and they say, um, uh, if thou art the Christ, tell us plainly, and so forth. So, so Jesus uh, was there. He didn't protest that Hanukkah. He <laughs> was there for the Feast of Dedication. So there's nothing wrong with Christians celebrating it. But the idea is that Martin Luther would have seen Jews putting candles in their uh, houses in the menorah, and maybe you know that inspired him to put candles in the branches of the tree. Um, but um, so uh, back to the, uh, the St. Nicholas stories. Uh, the Dutch. The Dutch really, really liked St. Nicholas. Uh, the Dutch um, had the aspect of the St. Nicholas story that was an adaptation from Scripture. So you, uh, you've heard the Catholics saying St. Peter's at the gates of heaven. Well, the Greeks do a take on the book of Revelation that Jesus will return at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead riding a white horse. And the saints will come back with him riding white horses. And St. Nicholas is a saint. So he will be one of those riding a white horse, but he was so special to them. They had him coming back once a year for a little mini judgment, a little checkup on the kids, make sure they're on the right track. So he was naughty. So he was nice. And saints come from heaven, the celestial city, the new Jerusalem that turns into the North pole. And uh, the angels turn into the elves and the lamb's book of life and book of works turns into the book of the naughty and the nice. And in in Norway, they didn't have uh, horses. So he's riding a reindeer. 
And so you can sort of see where it sort of gets off track. But in Holland, to this day, they still have St. Nicholas coming once a year dressed as a bishop riding a white horse to check up on the kids. And the Dutch add another aspect. St. Nicholas, uh, by the way, the Dutch pronunciation of Sant Nicholas is Santa Claus. So okay. when we say Santa Claus, we're basically using the Dutch pronunciation of Sant St. Nicholas. I'm, re- I'm so, reminded of that legal drama, uh, Miracle on 34th Street, where uh, the with Chris Kringle, uh, the real Santa Claus, he's, he's on trial, of course, and he's in Macy's, and you know the one little girl is watching him, her, she's been taught not to believe in, in Christmas and Santa Claus or any of that, and this young immigrant girl comes up who's a war orphan, and she comes up and the, the her guardian says, oh, she can't speak English. And so then the Santa Claus starts speaking to her in Dutch and calls her Santa Claus. And then they sing some Dutch song together, some Dutch Christmas song. I'm reminded of that as you tell me this, of Santa Claus and Santa Claus. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, so uh, in Holland, uh, Santa Claus has a helper named Zwarte Piet. And he is a Muslim. And he takes the naughty kids and puts them in gunny sacks and takes them back to Spain and sells them into Muslim slavery. (laughs) So Spain was controlled by Muslims for 700 years and they enslaved over a million Europeans. There were whole Catholic orders in Europe through the Middle Ages called the Trinitarians. The head of the order was called the Ransomer and they would collect alms and donations at church services to ransom back your friend that was captured by these Muslim pirates. And, uh, and so it was, um, uh, a, a real threat that still uh, caused fear to go around. So uh, I was doing a, a radio interview and someone called in and they had been raised in Holland and they said that every night before the visit of St. Nicholas, all the little boys would go to sleep with pocket knives in their pockets. I said, why is that? He goes, that's to cut ourselves out of the gunny sack in case Varte Pete took us. Wow. And, um, I would have loved to have tormented my little brothers with that. But so now we got the Dutch settling New Amsterdam in 1624 and they controlled it all the way up to around 1664. So about 40 years. And the first Dutch reformed church in, in America was the St. Nicholas Dutch reformed church. And uh, so uh, in New York, you have Washington Irving. He's the one that gave us Rip Van Winkle, Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and Dietrich Knickerbocker's History of New York from the beginning of the Dutch dynasty until the end. And, um, and he's, he's the one that gave us the name Gotham for New York City. And yeah. so Washington Irving uh, describes this tradition. He says, and now St. Nicholas visits us once a year, riding in his wagon over the treetops, throwing out presents to his favorites. But he describes St. Nicholas dressed in a Dutch outfit of long trunk hose, leather belt, boots, and a stocking hat. And, uh, and then in New York, 1823, you have Clement Moore, and he's a Hebrew professor. His family donates land for an Episcopal seminary. Downtown Manhattan, there is Clement Moore Park, where his family used to live. And Clement Moore uh, wrote a poem for his children, A Visit from St. Nicholas. And you know it, it was Twas Night Before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. So he still calls St. Nicholas, but he shrunk. He's a right jolly plump old elf. I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. And, and then we get to the Civil War. 
and Thomas Nast, N-A-S-T, is an oh, illustrator yeah. for Har- Harper's Weekly Magazine. He gave us the donkeys and elephants for the political parties as a, as a political right. cartoonist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so he is the first one to have a North Pole sign behind uh, Nicholas, St. Nicholas. And it's St. Nicholas addressing the Union troops during the Civil War. And the North Pole sign is a political jab at the South. Gotcha. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And then uh, in the late 1800s, you got all kinds of uh, very creative artwork of St. Nicholas dressed in fur and, you know, and riding bicycles and smoking pipes, which came, you know, tobacco came from the American Indian and all that. But um, uh, then you have the early 1900s and uh, Haddon Sunblom is an artist and he's the one that gave us the Quaker Oats Man. And he gave us Aunt Jemima for syrup. And he oh. uh, was hired. He was hired by Coca Cola to do a painting of uh, Santa Claus drinking Coke. Uh, and Coca Cola invented mass marketing. It's the best trademark name in the world. And um, uh, they now St. Nicholas is full size again. He's a huggable grandfather. And uh, that's the image that was spread around the world. Um, but when um, we're talking, the history we we don't see him as a christian person anymore but when muslim immigrants come into europe or come into america they still see santa claus as a christian saint so they outlaw him they are offended by him because he's a christian figure so even though we don't think of santa claus as christian the the muslim immigrants do so we um we can peel back all the layers of the onion and see there really really was a man named nicholas who loved Jesus so much, he gave away all his money, um, and then he uh, went into the ministry. I skipped a bunch of his story, um, but uh, yes. Is it true he punched a guy out? My friend Rick so, Dieterin says he punched a guy out. We got about a minute and a half, two minutes. Tell me that. Yes, so, so it's all in the book. Uh, there really is a Santa Claus, uh, AmericanMinute.com is my website. But um, so he's imprisoned under Diocletian. He's let out by Constantine. And then the Arian heresy starts. A guy named Arius said Jesus was a created being less than God and writes a catchy song. And the Visigoths uh, convert to Arian, Arian Christianity. And it's splitting the Christian church. So Constantine orders all the bishops to the Council of Nicaea to settle this thing. They do. They're at the Nicene Creed. But the story is that Nicholas slapped Arius across the face for starting the Arian heresy, the first heresy splitting the Christian church. Nicholas got in trouble for it, but they left him in as bishop. He confronted the corrupt governor who was about to execute somebody, and there's stories of him you know, praying, and the sea became calm. So that's why he was the patron saint of sailors, why the Dutch uh, named the church after him, because the Dutch were sailors. And, um, and then he uh, uh, supposedly... the the people in his area were starving, and he talked one of the ships to unload some grain to feed his people and promised God would bless them, and the grain that was left in their ship had multiplied. And So the Greeks have lots and lots of stories uh, about Nicholas. Some are more believable than others, uh, but the, he really did exist, and he really was a godly man, and he was generous. And so that's what we can choose uh, to remember about him. Well, that's really cool. That's a very interesting story. And once again, uh, I, I want you to tell us the, the name of the book, and where it can be purchased, because folks, you need to you need to avail yourself of these books by William Federer. He's uh, he's uh, obviously you can listen to him, and he's a very knowledgeable person. But it's it's also the fun part of history, the really cool stuff. So go ahead, Bill. Uh, AmericanMinute.com is my website. AmericanMinute.com, 
And the title of the book is There Really Is a Santa Claus, The History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions. So, Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us again. You are one of the people that, that shows the way towards making history understandable and enjoyable. And I very much appreciate the work God's given you to do and the way that you carry it out. Thank you very much. Thank so, you, Ed. Well, thanks for joining us this afternoon. God bless you, and I look forward to talking to you again. You have a Merry Christmas. Well, God bless all the listeners, uh, and uh, a Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Well, that's a fitting way to end a Christmas show. So, folks, thanks for tuning in today for this special post-Christmas Christmas show, and we'll see you next week on Your American Heritage. God bless us, everyone.